And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Coming up on the Audible, Bruce recounts his trip to Indy for the NFL Combine and everything that went on there. That's today on the Audible. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And of course, Bruce, it is championship week. It is March Madness. We are fully ready to talk some basketball today. We are? I'm not. I could care less. <laughs> well, that's funny because I could care less about the combine, but I can see that our football audience probably wants to hear about that. So, yes. I don't know, maybe I should just give you the floor for 30 minutes. Tell me what you want to know. You have to want to know something. You covered these guys for three, four, five years now that they're moving on to the NFL. They get seen through a different prism that's fascinating, plus you end up seeing a lot of I saw a bunch of college staffs in Indy who are checking up on their guys and everything like that. So Let me start there, since this is a college football podcast. Uh, what kind of college intel, if any, did you collect there? You know, it, it depends. There was I saw guys from Michigan staff. I saw guys from LSU staff, uh, from USC staff, from Penn State staff. A couple of things. There was a big buzz around two players who were not participating in Indy this weekend. One was Sam Darnold, and the other one was Saquon Barkley. Uh, both guys are draft eligible in 2018. I had a bunch of different people tell me they expect Saquon Barkley to be a top five pick in next year's draft. They think he is that special. Uh, and Sam Darnold has a lot of buzz about him. I think I don't want to say the jury's still out on Sam Darnold, but that's probably the best way to put it because you know, much like you'd heard about Mitch Trubisky, you know, he didn't have a lot of body of work. Reality is Sam Darnold doesn't have a lot. You know, he has less than a full season as a starter, but people really are intrigued by what they've seen from him. Yeah. How much of that is just because I feel like every year there's a guy who is not yet eligible who everybody says is better than the ones that are in this class. So how much of that is just pure intrigue over Darnold? How much of it is we're not that thrilled about the quarterbacks in this class, but oh, maybe there's a great one coming in the next class. I think there's some of that. The part I want to separate a little bit from is I'm not getting this from like, you know, online draft guys who were saying, you know, that, oh, Mitch Leidner would be the top quarterback in this class or whatever. I mean, I was hearing it from guys who are actually work in the NFL. So um, and this isn't me saying this. This is, you know, what I heard from them. It's a little different than when you get some of the, you know, rampant speculation that I think you'll start getting you know, a couple of weeks from now when people are projecting. I mean, also, it's not a stretch to look at what Saquon Barkley did. He's not like, a oh, some way off the radar guy. I mean, people have known he was a big big time guy. It's just the fact that there was a little while where people were like, ah, running backs, the value's low. Um, And I think there's still some of that just because people look and you say, okay, you can get a Jordan Howard. You know, last year wasn't that high. Ezekiel, it was the other side. Of course, he went into a great situation with, you know, fantastic offensive line. But um, I think that there's still when people say they see a difference maker guy, they're going to react to it. And towards that end, though, just to follow this up, even though Barkley's not in this running back draft crop, 
Uh, I talked to a longtime NFL scout on Saturday night who told me he thinks that there could be as many as a dozen guys in this class who at some point in their NFL careers could have thousand yard seasons. Huh. I mean, it is a great running back class. There's no question about it. Um, speaking of that, is, is Christian McCaffrey going to go undrafted now because he only benched 10 reps? No, actually, he ran and did, you know, showed the kind of athleticism I think most of us who follow the sport, you know, weren't surprised by. Um, and so that was good. Yeah. I mean, he he did 225 not many more times than I could do it. But that's he's not an offensive lineman. I don't think people people didn't expect him to come in there and and, and uh, you know, do 30 reps. And I, I think at this stage, I'd be lucky if I could do six, to be honest. I mean, he did 10, but. So what? I mean, whether he did what 10 or 14, not good. I'm guessing it would be in the high fives at this point. I'm not sure I would be much faster than Damian Mama, who weighs like 380 and ran a dismal like 585. All right. All right. Well, when you when you said you benched almost as much as McCaffrey, I thought I might be able to make a case for you as like a low round. No, 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 no. no. I have no idea. I, I don't think it's very good. I don't think it's very good. So Miles Garrett. All right. Even for somebody who like me, who's kind of like, eh, who cares what these guys measure at? But Miles Garrett put on a show, didn't he? He did. And again, there was a couple of guys who were definitely in the as advertised role. I, I would say this. There's been so much buzz about Miles Garrett since since before he showed up at, at A&M or since he just got there. Um, a couple of things really kind of popped with people. First of all, he's got incredibly long arms, you know, over 35 inches, which the NFL you know, that's a big factor in what they look for in their edge rushers is that length. Uh, he's really strong. I think that was an under the radar thing. We had this in our freaks list, you know, the last couple of years, but he's almost a 500 pound bencher. It shouldn't have shocked anybody that he was going to knock out close to 35 reps at 225. You know, his 40 time actually was quite a bit slower than even though people are like, wow, you know, that's all we need to see is when he does the four, six, four. I talked to him the day before he goes, I've gotten in the four, four threes in training. And he's, you know, if you saw his second run, he was like all over the place. He stumbled. Um, the vertical jump was even better than he expected. He was 41 inches. You know, I mean, his explosiveness is 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 amazing. And it, it's in that elite athlete defensive end group. Uh, again, he was 272. That's about 10 pounds bigger than what he had. You know, he was in the 260 range a lot at, at Texas A&M. And when you're talking about, you know, I mean, this guy's got like a 12 pack. He just he, people do not look like him. Um, as an aside, and I don't think this matters much to any other people whose fortunes are on drafting these guys. Miles Garrett's a really engaging kid too. Um, you know, just again, this is a throw-in thing, but when you talk to him, you can tell he's really intelligent. He's got a good sense of humor. He's very likable and engaging. And so, I mean, he's pretty much the total package. He has to go number one, right? Yeah, to me, he's as close to a sure thing and a number one pick as you could get. I mean, I know, you know, there's a couple of like Jamal Adams, a lot of people love, but you're not taking a safety who would probably run around four or five compared to what you'd get with an edge rusher. I mean, at one point, somebody asked Miles Garrett about Von Miller and, you know, Von Miller is even probably, a, you know, even faster, but and has already certainly, you know, won a Super Bowl, been a huge impact guy. And he's like, well, I haven't done any of that. Uh, but he is bigger. He is about, you know, 30 pounds bigger. So I'm excited to see what he does in the NFL. This is a very good group of defensive linemen as well. So John Ross breaks the record, right? 4-2-2, yes. 4-2-2, Chris Johnson was 4-2-4. I mean, I knew he was fast. I guess I didn't know he was, like, record-setting fast. 
he obviously was highly regarded already, but what does this do? I mean, it's always been assumed for a while now Mike Williams was the guy at receiver. What does this do for Ross's stock? I'm not sure how much it changes. Two things. One, when he was at Washington last year, they timed him at 4-2-5. So, nobody believes those college times. Well, maybe you should start believing some of them. I mean, I, I, you know, look, I remember when I was at Ole Miss, they had on their boards, on their player rankings, they would have the guys 40 times. And they had Mike Wallace that I want to say like 4-2. It might have been 4-2-2 also. And – People are like Mike Wallace. He was, you know, whatever. And I don't think they realized how fast he was. But the thing that I noticed was when he was in the four twos on that board, nobody else was like the next fastest time. I want to say might have been Jamarca Sanford at like four, four, seven. So when you have that big of a gap between that guy, the top guy in the second, then I give it more credence. You know, like it was there was one year that I want to say Ohio State maybe had 10 guys under four, four, oh. And then some of those guys went to the combine and, you know, didn't, you know, weren't running at that at that pace. And I think when you have that batch of times where it's like that, that's when people get a little skeptical. Um, as far as Ross's stock, our friend Daniel Jeremiah, I saw that day at the event and he said, you know what? I came in knowing two things about John Ross and he was fast and I knew he was fragile. And basically John Ross, you know, had a, like a cramped up at the end of that, you know, didn't, you know, didn't do as much stuff. And he was like, so I basically, that's the same two things I got out of there. My, I asked Daniel, I said, is he another Mike Wallace? And he kind of, you know, batted that around. I mean, if he goes on to have the career and the earning power Mike Wallace had, that would be a uh, good run for him. I remember when Terrell Pryor at Ohio State was said to have ran a 40 time that nobody believed. I want to say it was four, low four threes. Mm-hmm. But then he went to the combine and did pretty much, or not the combine, the uh, he was in the supplemental draft. So it was on his pro day. He, he worked out on a pro day. He, he ran like a 4.38. He really was that fast. But for a lot of times, these guys get to the combine and turn out to be slower than people thought. Sounds like John Ross was the opposite. Well, he was as fast as advertised. I mean, look, the best example I have of the, you know, maybe as freaky a guy as I had written about in the last 10 years was Margus Hunt from SMU. Marcus Hunt did almost identical the numbers that, you know, his track coach had told me about the year before, like almost across the board to the hundredth of a second. I mean, now some guys don't, you know, get there and maybe it's an excuse or more of an explanation, but I think the process wears guys out. They're around for 10 hours. They're just pulled in a bunch of different directions. Some guys don't respond to it that great. And maybe they don't run or time or test anywhere as fast. Now some other guys, I mean, there's a DB out of UConn who has created a lot of buzz, you know, pretty much for the last half of the year. Um, he is lit it up at the combine this week. I mean, 6'4", 224, vertical jump 44 inches, broad jumped almost 12 feet, which is insane. And then I think his official time is going to be in the low four fours. There are guys like that who come in and just grab everybody's attention with what they do. I mean, just as one other throw in, you remember Speedy Noel from uh, A&M, you know, he's a huge recruit, major character question marks. But I saw him the day before he was going to time and test. I said, what are you going to vertical? And he said, 48. I said, 40. He goes, no, 48. Quote me, 48. And I was like, and I knew he could jump because I knew in, you know, in high school, he supposedly had a 45 at the opening, but that was on those vertical pads where, you know, I think you can cheat the system a little bit, but if you're doing 45, you still should be in the forties. And sure enough, he didn't get 48. He got 43 and a half, which is a, it's a big number. But again, in a case like this, I'm not sure if anybody, 
you know, how many guys are going to go, okay, we knew he was athletic. Can we trust him, you know, as a football player? And that's another story. What was the craziest thing you saw, heard, just like off the wall, really kind of moment at the combine? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is on Saturday night, I was with a bunch of Packers guys and, um, the, one of their longtime scouts is Alonzo Highsmith, great football player at Miami, you know, very, very well connected in football circles and kind of a larger than life figure. And he just started telling old Miami stories and like the legend of Reggie Sutton is something that, you know, unless I guess somebody played at Miami, they probably have no clue. He may be the, maybe the greatest, the greatest non Jerome Brown athlete that they had there in the eighties. And it's just not a name that probably a lot of people know. And he just had one story after another of, of Reggie Sutton stuff. Let me, uh, let me back up a second. Let's just talk about what you do there in a day, because I noticed you kind of went off the grid on Twitter while you were at the Combine. You weren't tweeting a lot, which meant, which told me that you were up to something. What, what, what were you doing all day? These are like, you know, you get in as much as you can get in. And so I did not have my laptop for a lot of stuff. You know, there's a few things that had happened that you're just trying to kind of connect with as many people as you can. And it's at this point of you know, my career, it becomes pretty random as to the connections. Like, it's like, all right, I'm going to go meet this guy. No. And then all of a sudden you, you know, you end up meeting the two other guys at the, at the table who you're drinking with who you didn't know. And in the case of this, I met somebody for beers Friday afternoon who I knew and, you know, met his buddy. And then that guy's buddy it turned out was there's a Villanova defensive lineman who is also kind of one of these ultra freaky guys, six, seven, almost 290 pounds with 4% body fat, which, you know, that's, that's insane to begin with. Um, but he's a guy who was a no star recruit out of high school was six, three, two thirty, And, you know, it's funny, uh, our buddy Pete Thamel actually went and saw him at the, at the senior bowl and wrote about him. Uh, Tano Passigno is the player's name. And so that guy's defensive line coach happened to be with us. And he told this, you know, pretty cool story about this guy where like he was, Tano was a three sport star and the, and the, one of the high school coaches said to him, Hey, could you just, you know, kind of, you know, meet him or say hi to him. Cause I think we're, we would like to see him if he gets kind of more engaged in football. And this guy saw him as like, wow, he really is, you know, six, six two thirty, and looks like, looks like he should be in a, you know, an sec player or something. And then they tried to get him to come to camp to their camp to time him or see what he was, you know, see how, how athletic he really was. And they couldn't get him because he was at this future business leaders of America, you know, like one of these, like, you know, probably stuff that you were in, like in high school, like a lot of the high academic kids would gravitate towards these like key clubs or whatever they are. So I guess he was in Orlando for a while. He finally shows up to Villanova's camp, football camp the last day they had it. And I, they said they timed him at 474, made him run again, 474 again. And they were like, OK, we're going to offer this guy. And like I said, this guy is going to be in a very intriguing uh, NFL prospect. I don't know how high he goes because I'm, I think there's still the question is, you know, how instinctive a football player is, how much does he love football, but they know he's a very smart kid and, you know, he's exceptionally long and athletic and he looks like he is, you know, a video game character. All right. We have talked a lot about these quarterbacks recently, but now that, you know, I, I think we got to bring it up one more time since you just fresh off the combine. I saw that, you know, Deshaun Watson tested well and, and people were saying that the combine helped him. You and I would say, why does he need that to help him? You know, anything change in terms of these guys' stock over the weekend? Not for us, meaning me and you. I think, you know, he he didn't like, when you say tested, 
the thing he probably did the best, which he came in at six, two and a half, two twenty one. You know, he was not that thick, you know, for most of his Clemson career. So I think that, you know, seeing him in person probably just, you know, helped people, people feel a little better about his sturdiness. Um, he interviewed really well from what I was told by some of the, the coaches I know who met with him. Uh, he threw it pretty consistently, which nobody else in that quarterback, you know, group on Saturday wowed anybody, I think. And that was, you know, important to him. Uh, I, I talked to Jordan Palmer, who's the guy who worked with him to get him ready for this draft as a former NFL quarterback. And they, they did tweak some of his mechanics just about body positioning and just maybe to take a little more uh, pressure off his shoulder and how he delivers the ball. And they, hopefully that'll make him a little more accurate as well. Um, he doesn't have to try to throw it as hard. So I think there was very positive vibes about him. The other guys, it's interesting to me. Like I was curious to see, and I'm still curious what happens with Pat Mahomes as an NFL quarterback. I mean, he's really raw. He has, you know, crazy film in terms of just like kind of all the off, off platform throws. He has a powerful arm. He's pretty athletic. He's a smart kid. I talked to one NFL offensive coordinator who was like, he does not think he can play quarterback in the NFL and was like looking at me like I was a moron when he was telling me like just does not like anything about Pat Mahomes as a quarterback prospect um, in terms of just doesn't like his mechanics, doesn't like about his approach. You know, he's not like he didn't like him as a kid. He just was like, I don't see I don't see that working in the NFL. Guys don't do that consistently and play in the NFL, you know. So so, again, this one's definitely very polarizing. And there are guys like that. Malik McDowell, not a quarterback, obviously. Another one. I know one one position coach who thinks he's the most talented defensive lineman out there. But people say he's so wildly inconsistent. We don't know what we're going to get with him. And there, there are guys like that who are, you know, it depends who you talk to. Um, and I'm just rambling here. But this is another thing that surprised me. So before they do the workouts, you know, they have these quick interviews with coaches. And I had talked to one receivers coach about, you know, mentioned it rattled off a couple guys. And there was guys he didn't even like. No, we're not even looking at that guy. And it surprised it was surprising to me. There was a few guys who were really good college players who were at the combine and they were just not even factors to some of these staffs. There's just something about them or whatever. You know, they're just non-existent or whatever. So. And that made me interested that, you know, it was like, why not talk for 15 minutes to these guys or whatever? But they're just like, nah, we don't care. It's like if, you know, out of sight, out of mind to them. So what's up next for you? Because obviously at this point, I'm knee deep in bubble teams and number one seeds. I will be all week um, doing daily updates coming on during the Big East tournament for Fox and then covering at least the first two weeks of the NCAA tournament. What's up next for you? I mean, I'm going to still try to go along with the draft process. I, I feel like it's still kind of it pops to a lot of college football fans no about question. where their guys go on. Um, I'll start to get into spring football as well. I know that's already bubbling up at a bunch of different places. So um, I got to be honest, I'm still probably like you. I'm on. You know, I still get some releases from conferences, news releases because I get them because, you know, it's the overlap between college football and college basketball. I was looking at uh at the ACC, you know, season long awards and who's on what team, you know, first team, second team. I was like, huh, Danny Manning's the head coach at Wake Forest. Who knew? You know, like I'm just kind of like, looking. I'm sure you're not the only one that didn't realize Danny Manning was the coach at Wake Forest. But, you know, the fact that he came up in the coach of the year voting and that Josh Pastner of Georgia Tech won the award. I don't want to get too deep into ACC coach of the year talk, but it's kind of like how in football, the Ohio State fans lament that 
you know, no matter how well they do, Urban Meyer will never win Coach of the Year because Coach of the Year is always about beating expectations. Roy Williams won the toughest conference in the country by two games, and yet we're giving it to the guy. Georgia Tech finished one two, <laughs> fifth from the bottom in the ACC. Whether that was better than they were expected to or not, how is that Coach of the Year material? I'm not going to argue with you still. Yeah, okay. If you remember, we ran out of time when I was at Northwestern. Uh, by the way, that worked out well. Woo. Um, that trip, we got some emails that we didn't get a chance to get to. So we're going to hit them now. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Here's a draft one for you. From Mark in Kentucky, Bruce and Stewart, everyone knows how character flaws mistakes can negatively affect draft stock, but can you think of any past or current examples where positive character traits raise draft stock? For this draft, I'm thinking of James Conner of Pitt, his battle with cancer and the reach of his story. James is talented, but sure to not be the top running back talent, even with his 2016 tape. Uh, you can see he started slow, he got more dominant as his conditioning improved. Would James' positive character aspects help lift him to a higher round or are only negative character traits weighed when prospects sink on the draft board? I mean, that resolve, I, I think, does make him somebody people would root for and everything like that. And I think, you know, his toughness. Remember, he had to come overcome a major knee surgery, too. So I think there is that. Um, but I look, I think that there are guys like that that were like, here's an example of this. Um, I ran into somebody who told me they had just interviewed Dalvin Tomlinson from Alabama, could not stop gushing about him. Um, he was a former wrestling champ, you know, in high school, played a lot at Alabama, was a real rock for them. But I don't think that great character and everything they love is going to push him into the first round. So I think people factor it in. But I think at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of great guys in the NFL. I mean, we tend to hear about the ones who aren't great. But um I, I think they really just factor that in, but at the same time, they, I think they do take it with a grain of salt. End of day, you got to be able to play, so it doesn't surprise me that that wouldn't have um, a major impact. Okay, Bruce and Disco Stew, Daryl from Manville, Texas. With the Big 12 last among Power 5 conferences in revenue, I don't think that's actually accurate, number of teams and combine participants, the last part is true, is it fair to say that the conference is to the college football playoff what the Big East was to the BCS. We saw what happened to the Big East. Are we witnessing history repeating itself with the Big 12? I don't think so. I mean, the the one thing is the Big 12 always had, had that feel where it could get pulled apart. But in terms of just the viability of some of the teams in there, no, I, I think that's a little bit of a stretch to say that. Well, I think he's saying that the Big East was on shaky ground and eventually if it imploded and they lost their BCS status, could that happen to the Big 12? Well, We've been talking about that for a, for a while, but I don't think they're going to pull the Big Twelve out of the out of the, out of the playoff, though. No, they're definitely not. Um, remember, there were, that was just timing. The Big East becoming the American happened to all take place right when the BCS was switching over to the playoffs. They basically got their one year um, that was guaranteed in the contract, and then when the new one started, they weren't part of it. Uh, the other thing about the Big East is a lot of the problems and dysfunction that led to the end of that conference had to do with the tension between the eight football schools and the eight schools that only played basketball. So, or I guess it was seven, the Catholic seven that ended up bolting. So that's not, not an issue in the Big 12. Um, I want to just, on a random aside, this just occurred to me because I was thinking Big 12, expansion, 
John Curry, Kansas State, going to Tennessee. Like that move? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I was fine with it. I mean, some of the ADs I know really respect him. And I took that as, hey, they got John Curry. They didn't hire Phil Fulmer, who, you know, we talked about this probably a month ago. Phil Fulmer has not really, not worked in college athletics for a decade, you know, is closer to 70 than he is 60 and has no athletic director experience. And also, you know, I had this discussion with a buddy of mine who was like, well, maybe there could be like, you know, similar to Barry Alvarez. Barry Alvarez, you know, that happened 20 years ago or so or close to Not that. Not quite that, but yeah, I see. Well, 15, you know, and but he wasn't that far removed from college athletics. And my point is right now, a big piece of being a really good athletic director is handling crisis management. And. Part of that is knowing how to react and having a sense of even social media and things like that. Those are things Full Fulmer, I, I bet, has very limited exposure to because he's been so far removed from it. Yeah, this was an interesting one to me because, you know, just like we got that question last week about Jack Swarbrick and, and Notre Dame fans think he's the devil and we really respect him. Same for me with John Curry. I think he's one of the more, um, you know, up and coming ADs out there. I went to Kansas State when they played Auburn on a Thursday night a couple years ago. I guess that was three years ago now. And the facilities there, you know, have come so far. And when this happened, I thought, great, great move by Tennessee. And then immediately, K-State fans were like good riddance because they're unhappy with Bruce Weber, the basketball coach. And then there was a faction, not all, but a faction of Tennessee fans that are ticked. It was a big faction. You know, what I had gotten from some of them was like, nobody loves Tennessee more than Phil Fulmer. And I was like, you know, that's great, but it's not like a watch you give somebody who retired and let him go be the AD. This whole thing kind of told me a lot about why Tennessee is such a mess, that there is this big a faction that is so loyal to Fulmer, I guess because he is the last one who had football success there. I mean, you know, the very next day. Well, he is a Tennessee guy. I think there's that part of it that they wanted. Look, Lane Kiffin was such an outsider. Well, the ironic thing is they want nobody was really supporting him when he got fired. I know. They all wanted him fired back then. Yeah, it's like revisionist history has set in on this with Fulmer. So there was a story that came out the next day, I want to say, after Curry was hired. Just all these anonymous sources about how it was a Jimmy Himes story Jimmy on Himes, Gridiron yeah. Now. He's a, and Jimmy Himes, for people who don't know, is a longtime uh, Tennessee media guy who, quite you know, to his credit, has broken a lot of stories. Yeah. And may, I think he broke this story about about John Curry. He's broken. He breaks more news on the Tennessee, you know, athletics front than than anybody I know of. You know, it's because he's been there for so long, and he still seems to be plugged in. Well. His source is either Phil Fulmer or somebody really close to Phil Fulmer. Uh, because according to this story, Phil Fulmer was under the impression he was getting the AD job right up until the last minute. Curry worked there 10 years ago. Well, and- also, but keep in mind, he said the reason, one of the reasons why Fulmer wanted the AD job was to keep was John he- Curry from getting it. Yeah, which is like, that's a bad look for everybody. It reminds me of all the tension when Rich Rod got to Michigan. And people felt like Lloyd Carr wasn't in his corner. Mm-hmm. It, it, and so I'm worried a little bit for John Curry if he's walking into this environment where they're already kind of poisoning the well a little bit. Uh, now, remember, he had been there before. He actually predated, I think, predated Mike Hamilton, who was his boss. And they were part of the people who you know ran full, Phil Fulmer out of there. That's but, where this, what this is all about, is that apparently the two of them did not see eye to eye. 
Yeah. So, and look, I'm sure Phil Fulmer has his, you know, there's enough people around there that are like, hey, not only do we not like that he didn't get the job, it was like they hired that guy on top of it. So, so we'll see how it works out. I mean, the one thing I would come back to is I had a bunch of people ask me about this because I, I just said I thought it was a good get as how I referred to it. Um, was people I know who I really respect who are ADs and understand the business of it uh, think pretty highly of John Curry. And so, you know, I would defer to them on that. They know their they know their business better than than most everyone else outside of the business of being an athletic director. What's interesting is what's happening in the SEC. So or just in the last, what, six months, you've got Curry will be the AD at Tennessee now. Greg Byrne became the AD at Alabama and Scott Strickland. Uh, he was in the SEC at Mississippi State, but now he's the AD at Florida. Well, all three of those guys come back to the SEC. All three of those guys are kind of connected at the hip, right? They they mm-hmm. got started in the SEC. They're part of that younger generation of ADs that are moving up in the ranks. In fact, I would put Greg Sankey in kind of a similar, um, I don't want to say social circle, you know what I mean, like peer mm-hmm. group. So it's like the SEC is kind of modernizing itself on the AD front. And it's an interesting juxtaposition because I just wrote that story last week about what's wrong with SEC football. And a big, big part of it was questionable coaching hires. You know, the conference that used to always have the best coaches has done a pretty miserable job in their most recent wave of coaching hires. But the ADs, I think they're getting they're hitting some home runs. Now, those ADs, uh, I mean, look, I realistically... Uh, John Curry's going to have to hire a new football coach next year. I just, I don't see how Butch Jones turns this thing around. And when he does, I'll be interested to see if this new wave of guys can reverse this trend of just, you hire somebody and and as soon as he has one good year, you throw all this money at him and then you're stuck with him because you can't afford to buy him out. Like, will we be a little bit more judicious with our spend? And you want to hire good coaches, and you got to pay the market value, but can you maybe manage it a little bit better instead of this? I mean, Dan Mullen just got an extension. He's going to make $4.5 million a year. I love Dan Mullen, but man, $4.5 yeah. million a year? He hasn't come close to winning. Um, well, he did come close one year to winning even a division. Yeah, look, that's them stepping up to show, hey, even though you aren't the AD. But yeah, I was surprised at that number. By the way, Dan Mullen has been there... This will be his ninth year. Do you know how many seasons Dan Mullen has had with a winning record in the SEC? More than you – oh, in the SEC. Never mind. I thought you were going overall. No. Uh, yes. Two. Nope. One. One. One year with a winning record in the SEC gets you $4.5 million a year, and we wonder why the SEC has become Alabama and everybody else. Yeah. I mean, look, I think he's a good coach. I, I would, would argue with... that he's the second uh, – you know, obviously Saban's on a whole other – level i mean who if, if this came up with my story who is the second best coach in the sec right now in the sec yeah i said it's mullen i don't think it's mullen look i think brett bielema did more at wisconsin than well you know. yeah he's more accomplished by far but what is he done he's one game under 500 at our yeah jim McElwain has won two straight sec east and he probably doesn't get as much credit as he should but he hasn't been recruiting well and just isn't really inspiring a lot of confidence, uh, but he would certainly be somebody. I mean, if, look, consider. if you want to put record, and he is really tainted right now 
Freeze has done more than these other guys have. He took he took over a team that was two and ten. Yeah, I actually think this. I mean, you could argue about the order, but I think the second and third best coaches in the conference right now are in the state of Mississippi. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have crammed that in right at the end. Uh, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. There's still some more that I wanted to get to that we still haven't gotten to. Well, we have later this week. Later this week, we'll pull them in with the next wave, which I know you guys are going to send us. And as always, you can subscribe to The Audible on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We will see you next time. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.